0: Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join today, she's an entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of Dr. Rissy's Writing and Marketing and Gen Z Publishing. It's Marissa Schwartz. How are you doing today, Marissa?
1: I'm oh, wonderful. How about you?
0: I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do first with all of our guests is talk about, go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up?
1: So I am in the sixth generation of my family to be born and raised in New Jersey. I grew up in Woodbridge, which is the oldest town in New Jersey. And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, a lot of Jersey pride here. Um, growing up, I grew up my parents' mom and pop floor covering store, which is, uh, you know, main street shops. So I really grew up influenced by small business and community and Jersey community. <laughs> We're an interesting breed. And, um, you know, I, I kind of used that and and that's, you know, that my, my parents and and their business and their friends' businesses definitely inspired me with uh, my career
0: path. Growing up in Jersey, did you, did your family take on like the Jersey culture? Like when people think of Jersey, it's kind of that lifestyle that people are used to. Did your family kind of utilize that culture in everyday life?
1: Yeah, well, nowadays, so I moved out Bridge. I moved to a place called Morganville, which is such an interesting part of Jersey, because I live on two acres, and my neighbors are alpacas and cows, but I'm 15 minutes away from the Jersey shore, I'm five minutes away from a train to New York, so, like, we're in the middle of a little bit of everything here, and I, I think that that's kind of what Jersey's all about, where, you know, you have we must have about 10 diners within a five minute radius of me um you know we have malls everywhere like yeah so definitely
0: <laughs> i i feel like that's the perfect spot and you basically can go anywhere and just you enjoy summer you going to the shore if you got to go to new york you got a short little train ride and everything sure.
1: yeah i'm wearing my jersey shore sweatshirt actually quite <laughs> pleasant my favorite beach
0: yeah As you're growing up, did you start finding any passions in yourself? Did you like starting to do certain things or were you kind of adventurous and wanted to try everything?
1: Yeah, I definitely was a try-everything person. My parents put me in dancing school when I was uh, one month away from turning two. So I was literally one year old in like toddler tumble classes. Um, and dancing was a big thing for a while, but then I discovered acrobatics and singing and karate and just try a little bit of everything. But I started my first online business when I was eight years old. I was collecting uh, Mighty Beans, which they're like little magnetic, you know, you've got to collect them. They have all little faces and stuff. And um, you would- try to collect the rare ones. And I got so many packs that I had a bunch of repeats. I was still missing certain rare ones. So my first business was selling mighty beans on eBay to get the rare mighty beans. And I've had that PayPal account since I was eight years old doing that. Um, so that was, I think my first venture And then, then writing and and reading and all of that. Um, my father would read to me every night before I went to sleep. And that was a huge influence on me. Like I just loved learning the stories and everything. So Um, I did have a lot of passions and try a lot of things growing up, but the things that I stuck with definitely were there from an early age.
0: Was it beneficial to start that Mighty Bean business right away so you can learn? And as you're getting older, becoming an entrepreneur, you knew what you needed to do to make it successful.
1: Yeah. As a kid, see, here's the thing. I didn't even realize I was starting a business. Like it was just something that I did like, oh yeah, I'm going to eBay now. Like it didn't, on I me mean, literally until grad school that holy cow, I was an entrepreneur at eight years old selling my beans anyway. It just, it didn't feel like that to me. It was so fun. It was like a, just a, a huge hobby. Um, but yeah, it, uh, that definitely influenced me, you know, in, in learning, okay, what works, what doesn't work. If I wrote a crappy, you know, title for my Mighty beans, nobody was going to buy them. If I shot crappy pictures of the money beans, nobody was going to buy them. So I did have to learn a bit of marketing from that young age. That I even that that's what I was doing.
0: When you were trying the different activities, was there ever something that stuck out to you that you're like, maybe I want to pursue this even longer?
1: Yeah. Oh, well, performing, like singing and dancing and all that. I love that. And uh, from competing at such a young age, like I wouldn't get staged, but like, I I would just walk on stage and I would actually be more afraid to talk to people like one-on-one or especially in a small group. Like put me in a group with three people, so scary, but put me on a stage, totally fine. Um, so, you know, from a young age, I, I knew that I liked that whole performing and all of that. I, I didn't, you know, and now, you know, with doing this, I get to perform a little bit like I, I do my social media and my TikToks and all that. But it was something that I would have never imagined the way that morphed into what I do.
0: Why do you feel that you were better at being on a stage in front of many people than in a small setting with a couple people?
1: Yeah, I'm an introvert at heart. It, it's actually funny. I always thought I was like, the only person in the world that felt this way. And then I heard an interview with Lady Gaga and she's the same way. It's something about just feeling comfortable. Well, first off, it's also when you're performing in front of a big crowd, you can't necessarily see everybody's faces. I always like to look above the crowd or I wear sunglasses and then I can't see the faces that they're making because that is intimidating as heck. But when you're in a small group of one person or three people, if they're not listening or if they're judging, you notice that. So it's a lot more, it's even more intimidating that way. I think it's kind of bad if I'm, I, I'm not a psychologist, but if I'm going to psychoanalyze myself. I think that that has a lot to do with it. And I also, I'm just an introvert by nature and
0: yeah. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. Like the smaller setting I'm more comfortable with because I can try to get them one-on-one or grab their attention. But when I'm out in, like, I remember doing like public speaking classes and there's maybe 10 other people in the class that was fine but I've done speeches in front of 300 people and I'm like um like stage fright but then I think as I got older it got a lot better because I think I got more comfortable with what I was talking about then I'm like oh okay I don't care if they don't like it I can't please everyone I gotta just do my best and try what I can
1: absolutely did you start
0: finding, um, as you're getting older, you talked about your dad was reading to you and books. When did you start wanting to pursue that even more? Because you talked about in some sto- articles that I read about you, where you started to write at a young age.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, um, it was fine. I had my first national article published when I was 12 years old. Uh, I was always reading. So uh, of course, then I had wanted to try, you know, my hand at writing something that would inspire people. So I had my first article published in a magazine called discovery girls. And it was about my experience with Lyme disease. And I started getting letters from other, I was 12 at the time, other little girls saying how my story inspired them. Some of them had, also gone through illnesses and things and just hearing from them and that people actually read my writing and that actually impacted them. It was mind blowing. And I was like, I have to keep doing this. So then, um, at 13, I became an advisor to junior scholastic magazine, which was, uh, in like the libraries, one of those little like five page magazine things. And yep. they would ask me for like my opinion on different articles. It was really neat. I would get to weigh in on these articles and be in the magazine. And I loved it. It was the most exhilarating thing to me. You know, like my, my classmates would go into the library and, oh, let's see what Marissa had to say about uh, the weight of our backpacks. Like, it was just really cool. Um, and, you know, so I, I kept writing for fun, but teachers can have a huge impact on you um, because I then went to a biomedical science academy. You know, everybody was like, oh, you need to become a medical doctor. It's the best way to go, blah, blah, blah. So I went to a biomedical science academy already to become a medical doctor until I realized I was rushing through my biomed homework and my bio med, even my biomed classwork. I was rushing through it so I could work on my own novels and my own stories. And I'm like, I think I prefer this. And that was when it was really cemented for me. Okay, I'm meant to do this, this whole writing thing rather than the science stuff.
0: Talk about being diagnosed with Lyme disease. How did you find out about it? And talk about that experience.
1: Oh my gosh. It was terrible. Um, so I was always active. I, you know, like I said, I went to dancing school starting at age one and I started to get these aches and pains. I was just always really tired and just, uh, really always in pain. Like I, I felt like an old lady with just constant back aches and all that at age 11. Um, and it got so bad that, you know, well, I, I remember I started doing toe dancing and just my legs started shaking and like, I was having a lot of issues and stuff. And, uh, it got to the point I had to drop out of dancing and all these things I've been doing for such a long time. Hello, Mo. Um, and, um, yeah, so I went to, uh, uh, my regular doctor who sent me to a bone doctor, um, who was like, oh, it's just growing pains. You're fine. And like, it is not growing pain. So I was like suffering for months with this. I wound up going to 12 specialists total. Nobody knew what it was. And I'm just in pain constantly, like, this isn't normal. Um, And it wound up taking about a year to get diagnosed. Um, And then finally, I went to a homeopathic doctor, a DO, who said, I think you have Lyme. Let's, Let's treat you for, let's test the Lyme. Let's treat you for Lyme. And sure enough, it was Lyme. And because it took about a year to get diagnosed, I have uh, arthritis for the rest of my life. But it's one of those things where you learn to live with it. Because of that, I got into yoga and different things that help with the arthritis. So um, it was a bad experience, but it brought me it made me discover my love of writing. Like I wouldn't have written that article if it wasn't for that. And I wouldn't have discovered yoga. So I have every bad situation that comes something good.
0: Was there ever a time during that year where no one could figure out what was, what it was that you were going to give up and be like, I guess I'm never going to find this out. Or did you kind of keep the momentum going and be like, we're going to find this, even if it takes a little bit longer?
1: Yeah. I mean, at age 11, it was tough because I had one doctor who thought it was cancer. I, I went to um, you know an oncologist, not knowing the word oncologist, I had no idea what it meant until I walked in and saw girls with bald heads. So there wasn't much giving up. It was just the doctors bringing me in all different directions where I'm like, Oh my gosh, do I need to do this? Like, so there was never a thought of giving up. It was just a thing of, we're, we need to figure out what this is. Um, and, uh, yeah, some doctors wanted to, you know, uh, give up, I guess, like, just like, oh, we don't know. And some of them told my parents or asked them, like, could she be making this up? <laughs> Actually, a few of them said, could she be making this up? And I uh, think gosh, my parents didn't entertain that thought because, uh, that was probably one of the, that was the scariest thing for me was the thing of being in all this pain and not being believed. That's yeah, that was, that was a, a, a something that another reason why I thought about becoming a medical doctor, just like I could help people that go through situations like this. Nobody should have to prove that they are sick. You know, it's a crazy thing.
0: Was it hard be, having to give up like dancing and all that performance based activities because of the Lyme disease?
1: The dancing, actually, I was pretty relieved at first because I was a competitive dancer. There was a lot of pressure with the dancing. So at first the dancing was like, you know what, this is nice. It's a little bit of a break, but um, I did start to miss it. And there was, I was supposed to do a pageant. So I also did pageants and um, I, this was about three months into it. I was like, I need to perform in the pageant. I need to compete in the pageant. And my mother was like, well, you, your talent is dance. So how are you going to compete in the pageant? And I was like, I'll sing. And I had never sung publicly really by myself before that, but I sang for it. That was my first time publicly singing and I loved it. And that allowed me to discover my love for singing even more. So again, something good came out of something bad, but um, I, I guess I, I didn't miss the dancing as much once I got more into singing.
0: You mentioned that you were able to write an article about what you were going through. Was this an um, amazing opportunity to express like emotions and being able to start small by helping other people that may be going through the same situation?
1: A hundred percent. And I, one of the big parts of the article was about the doctors not believing. And, and the big quote that they pulled out was, I wish that the doctors could hurt like I did for just one day and then they'd see, and, um, that I remember that quote, that quote was a little bit controversial with some people that like, oh, are you, you're wishing you're paying the doctors? I'm like, no, I'm saying that doctors need to believe their patients. Um, yeah. So,
0: I think I totally I can relate to that. I'm a type one diabetic. And a lot of times, the doctors don't know what we're going through. And so we're explaining it. And then they kind of go into a different direction. But it's like, if they just experience what we were going through for that short amount of time, they may know the direction that we need to go to be able to fix those things. So as much as I can agree to that quote that they pulled out, because it's true, because they don't know what we're going through. But they just have to feel it and understand it. 100%. Yeah. So talk about where did you get inspired by writing your novel? What was the kind of the theme and the concept that you wanted to talk about?
1: Yeah, so my first, so I self-published a, a book in high school. That was a, a guide to contests. I loved contests. I always entered those. But the my first um, traditionally published book uh, was a memoir. It was called Notes Never Sent. And it was about, you know, the people that you see on like, you know, maybe not consistent basis. So let's say, you know, the the cashier that I see at my local convenience store who compliments my necklace. Uh, you know, maybe I was having a bad day and she turned it around by being so friendly, I would write letters to those types of people in this book about how they can impact you. Um, uh, and then I also did some personal stories. I did a few like tzuhitsus and poems about people who um you know, had an impact in some way, uh, in my, in my life or my experiences, uh, you know, like my great grandmother, I I talked about her and, and, um, she, she was an amazing way. She dropped out of school in eighth grade to take care of her mother and 12 siblings and was just the most brilliant person that I had ever met. Um, and, and just, you know, I talked about that. I I taught just a lot of uh, personal and family stories and experiences as well as those kind of letters.
0: What was the reaction when people were reading these letters or these items?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I did a lot of readings and uh, I'll never forget. I did one at a local library and I read the story about my great grandmother and people literally broke out into tears because it, it, the part that I read detailed how she passed away, uh, part of it was her passing away and they were literally in tears and, and audibly crying. And it was like, wow, my words can have that much of an impact. That's insane. That was another mind blowing moment. Um, And then I had uh, a a young woman, she was probably about five years younger than me. And it was that she was a a local, um, a a local young woman, and, and she just came to like every reading. And it was the news. You made me feel like Taylor Swift, that she would, whenever I have a reading, she would follow me and go to the readings and listen. And it was just the coolest thing in the world. Like, Oh my gosh, there's somebody who likes it that much that she's going to all my readings. So yeah.
0: You're going to have to bring a security guard the next time. She's going to become your entourage. (laughs) It was
1: crazy. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I I had never met her or anything before. That was just, she went to one reading and enjoyed it so much that she followed me and just uh, on social media. And whenever she saw a reading because she lived in the uh, nearby town, she would go to each one. It was
0: really neat. Did this give you the idea that I want to pursue this long-term instead of going to the medical side or something else that you are passionate about?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. That, that is the kind of uh, positive reinforcement that somebody would need to go. Yeah, I can do this longer. So I, I think that even more than that, I knew that I always wanted to, um, you know, go for my doctorate, but I, I, I was thinking medical doctor, but that was what made me say, Oh, you know, what? I can go for a doctor in, in literature. What? So that was really what pushed me in that direction too. And what pushed me to publish more and to publish other people through my, uh, com- my book publishing company.
0: So where did you go education wise? Did you have a certain college that you wanted to go to or was there a different direction that caught your eye?
1: Yeah, I went to um, Drew University, which is a small liberal arts school in Jersey. I wanted to commute, um, you know, at the time I had several clients in the area. I didn't want to go too far from them. I love my family. I, I knew I would be homesick if I went too far. So I went to Drew for undergrad um, then I went to Monmouth University, another New Jersey school, but this one was down the shore, uh, much more laid back, but still a relatively small liberal arts school. Then I went back to Drew for my doctor, and that time um, I actually stayed down there. I, but rather than living on campus, I lived in the hotel near the the school because I, I felt weird being like an adult, like living in dorm. i was like, <laughs> no, nah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dorm in the hotel, which was great. Room service, all that, so fun.
0: For two years <laughs> <laughs> what 's the biggest thing you learned about yourself during those years?
1: Uh, definitely, how independent I could be and and that I am you know a lot of people uh, give like commuting to school some flack, and uh, you know they say oh you 're not getting the full college experience, but I have to disagree with the fact that I would drive an hour and a half each way. I was super involved on campus, I was a member of a bunch of clubs, so I would get to school at you know 6 30 a.m and i wouldn't leave until 11 between 11 and 1 a.m most days so uh you can definitely commute and still be a, a huge part of the campus and, and i felt like i was independent because i was driving and i was always alone with the car where you know they wouldn't allow people on campus to have cars uh, uh sophomore and freshman year i was the one with the car i was the one who you know learned to navigate the the parkways and do all these other things myself so Um, that was a a huge learning thing. Just how independent I, I think that was my biggest thing was how independent. And now, you know, I, I, I live on my own and and all that in, in my own home. And, and, um, I learned a lot of great skills to be able to do that.
0: We talked about it earlier about small settings, about of people, it was harder for you. Were you able to be more open in a smaller setting during your college days or did you kind of still have those same thoughts going through your mind and preferred the bigger settings?
1: yeah um so actually when it comes to schooling i'm fine i like smaller classes i i think that's good so it was funny in in undergrad at true uh my largest class had maybe 16 students and then in grad school my largest class had maybe six students like it was a super small school and i was okay with that of course i'm always a, you know I'm, I'm an introverted so i take a little bit of warming up but um, I was fine with that. It's, it's, well, actually when I had to present, that's a little scary, but I, am. You know. um, <laughs> I would rather that a school like Rutgers, like Rutgers is where everybody from my high school went. It's like the biggest school. It's, it's basically, it could be its own city. It has like 10,000 students, maybe more, maybe a hundred thousand. It's like a ridiculous number, uh, that I would have been way more uncomfortable with. So I did like the small setting for school.
0: That's like here in Missouri, everyone goes to Mizzou and I'm like, keep me away from Mizzou. Like I wanted the smaller setting because I think I preferred it instead of going into a, like a door hall where there's a hundred people and your teacher barely knows who you are. So I kind of can relate to the small setting. not as small as six people. I mean, that would have been interesting. (laughs) You can't walk in late to that class because you're definitely going to find out.
1: You can't, and, and you're, you have to stay so focused. They notice if you drift off for even a second. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah.
0: That's funny. So when you're going to college, were you start thinking about the next book that you wanted to write or was there, or more memoirs that you wanted to write also?
1: Yeah. In college, um, that was when I, I was working for a book publishing company And just having the little seeds planted of the book publishing company that I wanted to open. So I was less thinking about the next book I was going to write and more thinking about how can I publish other people and make this into a business? And I did publish a few of my own book. I think I published two more books after I published a guide to writing and a guide to online business, but they were both nonfiction and they had a lot to do with my business more than that. So I got a little bit out of the creative side to, you know, that business side, but then um, for my doctor, I had to write my dissertation and that pulled me right back into that more academic slash creative writing. Because I wrote my dissertation on nihilistic libertarianism and popular culture, which, you know, I dealt with just reading all these, um, you know, I, I, it gave me an excuse to read a lot of my favorite literature again, like old country for no, uh, old, no country for old men, uh, things as silly as like fight club or kick ass. Like I, I include all of them in that. So yeah, I got to be creative.
0: When you're writing those guidebooks, with people reading them, do, is it hard for them to know your experience without actually talking to you? Or were you able to write in the book your experiences so that they could trust all the information that you were giving?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I um, made sure to put some personal photos. So, like, I started out my um, business guidebook with a photo of my parents and myself when I was like five years old standing in their store. Uh, holding, you know, a, a community award showing, you know, I've been in small business since I was this small. Um, so I, I did it, it, the first chapter, I think pretty much every single one of my books uh, in the introduction, I kind of establish who I am, why I'm writing it. Uh, and I include some visual cues as well so that people know, okay, got it. She, she has the, the, uh, the experience to, to tell me how to do this.
0: I think that's smart because there's so many books out there on like the same topic that it's hard for people to know, why should I read this one over another one? And I think even with like watching people on TV or in movies, it's like, why do we want to believe your story than someone else that's going through the same thing and not listen to them talk about the same topic? Absolutely. So after college or during this time also, how are you creating those businesses that you have today?
1: Yeah. Um, so in grad school, I would, uh, go to the library between classes. Um, I started actually as a freelancer. So, uh, for my marketing company, I would do freelance book writing and book editing. Um, so just like anybody else with like a job. So, you know, my friends were getting jobs at internships or jobs, at the mall, things like that. Um, instead of spending my time doing those, I would just go to the library, work on my businesses, um, freelance, and then I grew the freelance business into that. And then for the book market and for the book publishing company, um, I grew most of it through Twitter, just kind of tweeting about what we were doing and then editing the books and publishing them. So it was really just like a, a job for me.
0: Do you feel that you're so focused on the professional life that maybe your personal life or social life was taking a back seat to all of this?
1: Oh my gosh, definitely. So, well, actually I shouldn't say that in college, Um, I was super involved, but a lot of it still had to do, you know, that was my profession at the time. So one, you know, one of the clubs that I was in uh, was the newspaper club. So, you know, I would contribute a few articles a week to that. So it's still, it was building up my portfolio. So, you know, but I made friends from that. Um, I would do a lot. We did bingo. We did all kinds of stuff. So I would say in college, you know, I I had a, a decent social life. I think that in grad school though, yeah, I didn't have nearly as much time to socialize. And then um I had one year. So I, I finished school and I had one year to be social. It was great. I'm like, oh my gosh, I look at all this free time I have without school and then COVID hit <laughs> the social life went Poof, again. But um yeah, no, it, it um I did have to put a back seat to it, but a lot of the friends and, and connections that I made, they were also pretty focused and professional. So um I still could um you know talk to people and have, uh, you know, whether it was business related, like I have a lot of friends and marketing stuff. So we'll talk marketing and then we'll talk some personal stuff. So, you know, it, you make it work, you balance it out.
0: Were you able to be open with those friends that you made about the condition that you had or the things that you were going through? Uh, what the, Like you said about like arthritis, having arthritis and all that. Like, were you able to be open? Because at a young age, when you were going through it, you were able to write about it. But as you get older, some people maybe hold it in or they don't want to reveal it because they're afraid on how people would react to it.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you when I was a kid, um, I didn't really want people to know, but they knew because part of my, um, Lyme disease, I would, I would shake and, uh, I shook in front of friends and I was in middle school and it was something that I just, you, you don't want to do anything or be different in any way. And that kind of made me, you know, everybody knew then. And I'm like, Oh gosh. So it did. That, that's actually a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before where I wanted to hold it in and not tell people, but, um, my, my close friends are people who are very open. Um, you know, they tell me their issues and things, uh, you know, when well, my closest friend, she has anxiety, she's very open about it. And we talk about that. So I can interim be open with her and say, you know, hey, I had to like today, I had to go to the doctor this morning and I, I can feel open saying, yeah, she treated my neck. Hopefully it, it holds up for another few days. We're going to have a storm and it's going to be bad. So, um, yeah, luckily I, I do have friends that I can share with and they're open with me as well. Some of yeah, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I also think nowadays, uh, thanks to social media and stuff, people are more open about some of the struggles and personal things that they have because they know that they can inspire others. Um, so with my friends, yeah, I definitely can talk about it. Um, I'm not the kind of, I don't really talk about it on social media as much, but uh, with my personal friends, absolutely.
0: I can relate to that. Like social media, I don't post it, maybe like an awareness post for the things I go through, but I'm not like constantly talking about it because then I feel like some people might feel uncomfortable if they're reading about it, but my closest friends, they support anything. And those are the true people that you people should have in their lives that they are able <laughs> to be open and talk to you about the things. And they're not afraid because I think a lot of people, especially now with, whole people judging. They're afraid to say the wrong things so that they don't say anything at all. And I think people are going to, should be more open about it and be able to, because I think if someone wanted to talk to me about the things I was going through, I would be receptive to it because I'm glad that they have an interest in wanting to learn more so that they are better prepared for a situation in the future.
1: Absolutely.
0: So talk about one of the companies you have is Gen Z Publishing. What's the theme with that title? And everything. Why did you come, why did you use that?
1: So I named it Gen Z publishing before there was an actual generation Z. What I meant by Gen Z was innovative, that where we like fresh voices. So I started that, um, you know, when I wrote my first books, uh, a lot of publishing companies didn't necessarily take me seriously because I was a 20 year old who had written a book and I had actually, I was told by one publisher, we don't publish anything by people under the age of 40 am like, (laughs) heck uh yeah she's she's like you don't have enough to say you haven't experienced enough so I thought that's really ageist so I created my company uh to be diverse and to not judge people um uh, necessarily on their age or the background or anything like that uh as long as you had fresh ideas so I called it Gen Z meaning the the new generation of writers and then of course one year later generation z became an actual thing and I'm like okay so everybody's like oh you only publish books by people from generations eight no you publish all people um but yeah that was that was the original the original thought uh behind it and we still have stuck to that um we have uh, very diverse offerings of books um we've not been afraid to write about uh you know topical topics and um just uh, writing about dialogues that are going on, important dialogues and things. So,
0: did you ever think about changing the name when Gen Z came about, or did that make you kind of stand out because everyone's like, ooh, what's this about and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, um, a little bit. I mean, it, it, I don't think it's hurt us we do publish a lot of YA and New Age books. And then we also uh, made a subsidiary called Zenith Publishing. So I think that that helped a little bit to the fact there's Gen Z and Zenith. So when people see both of those, they realize, oh, okay, this isn't just for Generation Z. So I think that that's helped. Uh, I don't think it's caused that many issues. It's caused a little bit of confusion, but um, I think it did make us lean more into the YA stuff, which has been fine. We love YA books. so.
0: Is there any books or articles that you've published with your company that has always come to your mind every day? Like this is kind of my favorite that I've been a part of.
1: I, I, yeah, that's really tough to choose a favorite. Um, There are some that really stood out. Um, You know, there's uh, one book that's a book of poetry um, by her name is Joanne and she was a, a writing teacher for, I don't want to say the wrong amount of years, but it was a lot of years, decades. She was a writing teacher. And I went to her reading and I've never seen such a turnout. It was our library. The library was just packed with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of her students. And it just showed how much of an impact that she had on those students that all these years later, they would come and support her at her reading. And her writing is just beautiful. It's so honest and so personal. Uh, she's published two books with us. Um, we've published books by... Um, uh, um hazel who won the great uh, the worst cooks in america we published her memoir i thought that was so neat like i watched her on television and then we got to uh write publish her book about winning the show um we found a lot of really amazing people come through our doors that we got to publish
0: is it hard to reject or not be able to publish someone and how do you handle that
1: So that is one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to start this company, because when I published my first, uh, well, my first traditionally published book, I sent it to about 100 publishers and I didn't hear back from about 90% of them. Like they just ghosted, like nothing. And I thought, how terrible to just leave an author hanging where they don't know if you're interested, if you got the query, like at least tell me you got the query. So when I started this, I, I had a rule from the beginning, no matter what, we respond to the person who pitches their book to us. Um, and, uh, we have, uh, and, and when you write to them, you, you tell them if you're going to accept the book, great. We accept that 5% of books query to us, but if we're not going to accept it, we tell them why in a very nice way. Like, Hey, you know, if you, uh, hired an editor and, and, uh, picked up the grammar a little bit and worked on some of your syntax, we would be interested in potentially looking at this again in the future. Like things like that. Just tell them why so to help them I mean these are independent authors who are just trying to let their passions out like you know it, I, I think that they deserve the attention if they're taking the time to write to us we should take the time to respond so it is very very difficult rejecting people my first two years I tried to reject as few people as possible now we've gotten to the point where we're just getting too many queries and we can only publish so many that We have to reject 95% of people who query us, but we try to do it in the nicest, best way possible. It's going to be constructive for them.
0: Do you feel those changes that you guys suggest motivates those authors and writers to be even better and want to be able to make those changes to hopefully in the future, you guys would be able to publish it for them?
1: hundred percent. I've actually had people do that and then we publish them. I have another person who um, took the feedback so well that he actually applied for a job with us. And I was That's like, you know what, this is a go getter. Yes. And, and he's been working with us for about a year now. Like it's really neat. Um, so yeah, it's, it's gone over very well doing that.
0: What's your greatest strength being the leader of the company?
1: Um, I think the fact that I just go for stuff, like I'm not, I don't have really that fear of failure. Like I'm just like, let's try it. If it works great. If not, we'll do something else. Um, I, I'm, I'm from Jersey. So very fast paced, like, all right, let's try it. Let's I, I, mark. I don't want to, well, this is a, a controversial figure, but, um, when Facebook was started, their philosophy was let's move fast and break stuff. I don't go that far. I don't want to break anything, but I do understand the sentiment of let's try a bunch of stuff, see what works and then keep moving with that.
0: I think that kind of statement helps with a lot of businesses because they're willing to make changes or go up to date in times instead of sticking with what's safe, instead of not taking the risk and trying something new, because that risk can be something that makes it even better and people will love it even more. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about the different places that you were featured in. I saw that you were featured in like MTV, Forbes, Guinness World Records. Talk about that experience.
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll go in order. Um, As I said before about my singing, I love singing. So my crux of my singing career was, uh, well, I I grew up watching American Idol and all those shows and idolizing the people on them. So of course it was a dream of mine. I wanted to be on one of those shows and I kept applying and applying for all of them. And um, I was... Actually, very briefly on an episode of American Isle when I was 16, but then uh, seven years ago, six years ago, um, I was actually cast on an MTV show called Copycat where I, I got, it was like the American Idol dream. It was basically their version of The Voice where um, they gave me the golden ticket to Hollywood. I got to go to Hollywood. And then it was like The Voice where they can't see you at first. I'm behind a screen singing. So everybody kind of has to guess, hmm, what does this person look like who's singing? And then I come out from behind the screen and I sing. And it was so neat. Um, the host was uh, uh, Jonathan Bennett, who played Aaron Samuels in Mean Girls, which is like my favorite movie ever. So meeting <laughs> him was enough of a a, a dream come true and uh, just singing from all those people. It was, it was so, so darn cool. So um, I wound up, I was in the top five. We only lasted one season, but um, it was, it was great. It was, it was, that was all I needed to make my uh, singing dream come true. And uh, yeah, so that was MTV, Um, Guinness world records. I I broke the world record for making the world's longest chain of bracelets. Uh, It was on my bucket list from childhood to, uh, break a world record. And when I wrote my first book about contests, I thought, what a better way to promote it than to uh, win the ultimate contest, which in my mind was a world record. So I did that. And then uh, that was featured on Lifetime. Um, there was a show called This Time Next Year, where Lifetime followed me for one year in my journey to break the record again. Um, that was, that was fun. That was hosted by the host of So You Think You Can Dance, uh, Kat Dealey. Um, And then Forbes, uh, they did an article about people who both own a business and have a doctorate. I was featured in that last year. And that helped me to just last week, I became a contributor for Entrepreneur Magazine or Entrepreneur's online website, which is really exciting because I used to be a contributor for Entertainment Weekly, which, oh my gosh, now that was cool. I got to interview um, a lot of the cast and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and write about South Park. Like, I just got to write about all my favorite shows and movies. So that experience helped me to be able to write for Entrepreneur now. Wow.
0: I'm just impressed with all these different skill sets and opportunities that it's just amazing that, I mean, I honestly, when you told me about this, I'm like, I'm, I'm picturing what did she do on MTV or what's the Guinness world record. And it's just amazing. Do you feel these opportunities gave you a positive exposure in a way where it gave you more confidence to be able to do the things that you enjoy doing?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it, it, it really did. I, the biggest thing for me was I got to live those dreams. Like I wrote down all these goals that I wanted to do and I got to cross them off. I'm, I'm a, I'm a list checker person. Like I have giant to-do lists every day. So I get a lot of joy at crossing things off my to-do list, but just the fact that I was actually able to do it, it definitely, um, was, was great to, Follow my own dreams and to do them. What, what I will say though is, did my life change that much? No, not really. I'm still always me. And I've seen a lot of people say this like on TikTok. I'm a huge fan of TikTok. And <laughs> there's like a running joke on there where I think it's even a sound now where they say, You got a million views. Did it change your life? Nope. Was it pretty cool? Yes. It's the same kind of thing I think, with this. It's like, You broke a world record. Yup. Did it change your life? Not really. I'm still <laughs> me. I just got to do something cool. Like, yeah. <laughs>
0: Any plans to break any more Guinness World Records?
1: Nah, you know the one thing they don't tell you is how much paperwork there is. There was so much paperwork, and they're headquartered in the UK. So I'm like, send if my mother literally had to fax them stuff. Like it was the year nineteen hundred you know um and we're mailing stuff to UK it was a big pain in the butt it took an entire year just to get it certified it was a lot so my world record days are over
0: (laughs) did you have to have that like because I know with like YouTube videos they have that person that has to watch you do it Did, did you have that someone that's following you around or watching you do exactly or how did that all go
1: yeah. So that's the adjudicator and you actually have to pay their travel fees to come from the UK to the US plus like a $5,000 fee. I did not do that. I opted to do something else, which is um, I, having two um, like witnesses that are approved by them. So I had at the time, my um, high school principal and my local newspaper editor, they had to be the ones that followed me around and, and looked at everything and swore and sign off. And then I had to have Two notaries actually look and count each bracelet and sign off on it. And I had to film myself for 72 hours straight while I put it together. So I have every single moment on film, not allowed to be edited or anything like that, just like a live feed of it.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm still <laughs> amazed that the $5,000 fee for the juvenile, like, it's- yeah i'm not breaking any world records i gotta yeah. pay for them to come and then i don't get anything out of it like exactly you get the plaque but that doesn't cost me five thousand dollars <laughs> yeah
1: no i know so that was like but i do like the fact that we have where you could opt out of it because yeah i was not spending five thousand dollars plus their probably their lodging and everything
0: too because it was their travel yeah I would put them in a Motel 6. They ain't going to stay at the Four Seasons <laughs> or anything. <laughs> right? Yeah. Is there anything looking back at your journey that you would change? Or do you like the way it's been going? Because it's taught a lot about yourself and the growth for you.
1: Yeah. Um, I do like the way everything's gone. I think my biggest thing always is just, I wish I wouldn't have stressed so much or worried so much and just enjoyed the ride. Um, my father is the most go with the flow kind of person. He's a very successful entrepreneur and he's always stressed. That's me. Just everything works out. Everything will be fine. But I've always had this like little nagging, like, but what if it doesn't? Um, And I wish that I didn't, I wish I had just enjoyed like going on MTV. It was fun, but I was physically sick from being just so nervous about what if I don't win the competition? Well, I didn't win the competition, but you know what? It was an amazing experience. I don't think it would have been any less amazing if I would have won. Like, You know, there are so many things that you you just stress and worry about. And it's for what? It's like, just enjoy.
0: So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish personally and professionally in the next few years?
1: Yeah. Well, I definitely want to keep growing and scaling my businesses, my businesses, um, that's, I think the biggest thing we've grown a lot. We've grown the team, uh, grown our client base. I would like to keep doing that. I have a few other smaller projects, uh, in the works, a lot of like partnerships and, and things like that. But I think the main thing is just growing and, and, and not growing so big that you are, I've, I've had it where I went from being a solopreneur to having a team. And that was overwhelming at first because it was a lot of growth really quickly. I like, now I'm, I'm getting to the point where gradual growth is okay too, you know? Um so grad, I, I think I would like gradual growth would be great for, for myself, for my clients.
0: Yeah. The final question I'll ask you based on your journey and experience for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge?
1: Uh the well, there are a few things. I think the biggest is uh just to not worry about failure. Um, I, I talked about my dad up. My father said to me one time, you know, think about what is the worst thing that could happen. Is that so bad? And it's never as bad as you think it is. And it's like it, that really bad scenario in your head never actually happens, but even just thinking about what it could be makes things feel so much better. Um, and then I also like the idea of the fact that there is no box, like you don't have to follow a formula. You know, a lot of people say think outside the box, but there is no box. So, You don't have to follow any formula. If you have an original idea, you can chase it. You can follow it. uh, You can kind of pave pave your own path.
0: Well, Marissa, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you.
1: Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, and subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channels to the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.